In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as you should know, we are working our way through the Abraham narrative in our Old Testament readings this summer. And today's passage from Genesis recounts what scholars call the Akedah. The Akedah. It is the binding of Isaac, or simply the binding. It's been called one of the most intense, but also dismaying passages in the Old Testament. Hebrew scholars have debated it for thousands of years. The uh, existentialist philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who was fascinated with the story his entire life, called his treatment of it simply fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Ethicists wrestle with this story, and commentaries struggle to understand it. And I want us to look at it, and to do so under three headings. First, the goal of the story. Second, the growth in the story. And then third, the gospel from the story. So the goal of, the growth in, and the gospel from the story. First of all, the goal of the story. Well, the storyteller gives the goal right out the gate with the three simple words, God tested Abraham. And the narrator is showing us God's terrible test of his servant. And remember the context. So God had called Abraham and Sarah to leave uh, their home, to leave the people that they knew, to set out for a strange land packed only with a promise. The promise that I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, is a pivotal chapter in the fulfillment of that promise. So if the drama in the story itself were not enough, if it wasn't enough to wonder at Sarah as she watches her husband and son depart on that dark morning on their mysterious journey, if it was not enough to feel the dread growing in Abraham's belly over the three days walk to the mountain, if it was not enough to see Isaac perplexed, they, they had traveled all this way, conspicuously lacking a lamb, if that was not enough, the drama is even higher because, as Fred Craddock says, it is not only the life of a single child that is in jeopardy, but the life of the future people of God. The test is the goal. Will Abraham risk what he loves the most and trust the God who issued this terrible command? And as we watch the story unfold, when they arrive at their awful destination and Abraham builds an altar and arranges the wood, and then he binds the hands of the son he loves, his only son, the son of the promise. He lays him on the wood, and he raises the knife. 
Then he hears a voice call, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on your son, for now I know that you fear God. And then looking up through what must have been tear-filled eyes, he sees a ram. That was the goal. It was the test of the faith of our forefather. One uh, source I read this week said that whenever, uh, whatever is being tested is stretched to its limits. And God's goal was to stretch Abraham's faith to its limits, to see what Abraham was willing to give up for God. But I wonder, could it have been slightly more than that? Is it possible that the test wasn't just so that God could learn something about Abraham, which he already knew, but so that Abraham could learn something about God? That's point two. It's the growth in the story. In the Bible, God has many names, like Yahweh, which is God's covenant name. And sometimes a name will, inside the name itself, it will tell us something about God, tell us one of his characteristics. So uh, the name El Shaddai means God is mighty, the mighty one. Or El Elyon means God is eternal. But in this story, in the phrase God tested Abraham, the storyteller doesn't use any of those names. He simply uses the word ale. It is, it, it, it means the God. So the God tested Abraham. Now why? Why would he use that name? Well, there's some people that think that the story avoids the more familiar names for God because it wants to insulate the Hebrew God from the appearance that, that God sanctions any kind of uh, human sacrifice, which is pronounced anathema. Uh, throughout the, the, old, uh, the rest of the Old Testament. But I wonder if the name could be a signal. If it could be a sign that Abraham was about to learn something he could not have known about the God. There's a curious line in the story that reads, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the boy and I will go over there, we will worship, and then we will come back to you. Did you notice the use of the plural? We will go, we will worship, and then we will come back. Well, scholars have pondered that. Did, did Abraham actually believe that he would have to go through with the sacrifice, but that, that Isaac would somehow be resurrected? Or did he really believe that God would provide a lamb on the spot? And, or did he simply say that to soothe his son's fears? Whatever the case, when Abraham took his first step up the mountain, he believed something about God, that God would restore his son. Or at least he could. But here's the thing. That, what Abraham had, was simply cognition. It was something he had in his head. It was information that he may have understood, but he hadn't experienced it. 
in his book on preaching, uh, Tim Keller quotes Jonathan Edwards, who says that there is a twofold knowledge of good of which God has made the mind of man capable. The first, that which is merely notional, and the other is that which consists of a sense of the heart. So there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and then having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference, Edward says, between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet. That's cognition. And having a sense of its sweetness. That is experience. A man may have the former that knows not how the honey tastes. The end of the story, by the end, Abraham could taste what he had only known up here before. He could taste that he could trust God because God had provided for himself the sacrifice. And that's point three. The goal of the story, the growth in the story, and then finally, the gospel from the story. Uh, in the West today, there are a lot of people that are in the process of deconstructing their faith. The faith that they grew up in, they're taking it apart. And uh, I read an article about Sarah Bessie. Sarah wrote um, the book, Jesus Feminist. And in the article, she talked about, she'd gone through this process herself, and uh, so she talked about what it was like to deconstruct her faith. And she said, uh, the article said this, she'd felt some questions bubbling up in her faith. The sort of questions good Christians aren't supposed to ask about their beliefs. Like a lot of people, Bessie says she sensed these questions without really acknowledging them. Every now and then, she'd feel doubt, like a brush of cold fingers in her soul. But she successfully avoided facing them head on. And then there's a quote. She said, I think the thicket of questions, doubts, problems, and wondering were all well and fine until I actually started experiencing grief on a really personal level. Bessie and uh, her, her husband uh, had lost a child. Uh, they'd suffered a miscarriage. The devastation held her face to the doubts. And she realized that the system of beliefs she had was no longer adequate. And then there's a final quote. So that meant I went in the direction of feeling like I needed to burn it down. To burn it down. Maybe it's the concept of, of hell. Or maybe it is a traditional biblical sexual ethic. Maybe it is the evangelical church's long and complicated uh, history of, on race, or it, it might be theodicy, the problem of evil. How do you reconcile a God who is all-loving and all-powerful with a world that, where pandemics happen, a world where there are almost 80 million refugees and displaced people right now, today? Or maybe it's this story. 
Kierkegaard struggled with it. The rabbis still struggle with it. And the temptation is if we cannot fully understand it, then burn it down. This is not a sermon on deconstruction. I should give a sermon on deconstruction. Uh, This is not that sermon. But what I want you to see is that this story is not just a a, a terrible deity's capricious command to a father to kill his son. That's not what it is. It is foreshadowing. It's the gospel, if you know where to look. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. Then he himself carried the fire and the knife. If you walk the perimeter of this church, you can follow the stations of the cross, uh, the little plaques on the wall. And classically, traditionally, there are 14 stations of the cross. There there are stops along the way that pilgrims would walk on the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem. And when pilgrims can't go to Jerusalem, they bring Jerusalem to churches and put them up so that you can make your own pilgrimage. Well, the second station, which I think is over there, might be over here. The second station is called Jesus Takes Up His Cross. It's a scene from John 19 that says, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus and carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. When the wood is laid on Isaac, On Abraham's son, on his only son, the son he loves, it takes us to that station. To the day when the wood will be laid on Jesus, on God's son, his only son, the son he loves. Jesus will be caught. He will be, have placed on his head a crown of thorns as if from a thicket. Sacrificed. For us to be set free. This story foreshadows the gospel. One last quote. This is from Joyce Baldwin's uh, little commentary on Genesis. And she says that the Genesis record of Abraham's testing is rather like the first sketch, uh, the first drawing of a great artist who has in mind a masterwork. The pencil sketch is perfect in its own right, and yet the finished painting far surpasses the original drawing in which the same hand can be seen to have been at work. In this story, in this great and terrible story, we see not only the anguish of an earthly father with his son's life in the balance, but we hear the distant echo of our heavenly father who did not stay the executioner's hand before the sacrifice was complete. That is the God. It's the God of the story, the God of the Bible. We may know about him, that's cognition, but he wants us to taste his sweetness. Like Abraham before us, he orders the events of our lives. And then he asks, will you trust me? That's the question and your invitation.
In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.